arguably, in fact, I'm getting this from commentators on this passage, the most discussed, debated, and uh, perhaps frustrating passage in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So what I'm saying is, is I ain't answering all your questions, okay? Um, In fact, I was listening uh, over the last few days, a podcast is a a Bible teacher guy. His good stuff is great. His weird stuff's really odd. So you just take and pick what is good and bad. And he did like a four-part series on Melchizedek. I won't, I I believe you me, it was was rough to get through. And um, he did a QA and a with his podcast listeners. One of the questions has to be something we'll bring up. And of all his study, and he spent hours teaching on Melchizedek in this series, the, this idea of who Melchizedek was never came up, right? I'm like, how have you read all this stuff? And I've heard it, you know, for years. But nevertheless, uh, there is a lot here. Um, but the main thing for us to do, we want to look at the narrative here this evening. Next week, I want to do a more of a biblical theology where where does Melchizedek fit within the storyline of Scripture. We'll do some of that today. But I really want to take a step back um, from Genesis to Revelation, why the story is so significant. But before we do all that, let's read the story. Now, remember what's happened. You, you, we just come on the end of a major action scene. And so this is what follows that. Verse 17. After his return from the feet of, we've, we've nicknamed this guy Cheddar. You can't pronounce it any better than I can. So we're going to go with Cheddar. Cheddar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said... Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hands to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but that, but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were with me. Let Anir, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. All right. So let's start with the context. We, we've already mentioned this. Uh, this is coming on the heels of a great battle scene. And you may remember you have four foreign kings led by King Cheddar uh, attacks for five local kings. You remember what happens is the, lo- the, the local kingdoms, remember these are all Canaanite city-states. The five local kingdoms are paying tribute um, uh, to uh, Cheddar, right? And tribute would, would go for protection and, and things like that. Sort of like a tax between nations, I guess you could say. And eventually, uh, Solomon, Gomorrah, and all the others, um, they decided they don't want to pay for this. So what happens is predictable what's going to happen. Cheddar's going to round up the troops. He's going to attack, and he's going to make sure they pay their tribute. And what usually happens is the tribute is increased because now you've cost them um, soldiers and money. It costs to round up the troops and, and everything else that goes with it. Plus, there's the punishment aspect of it. We well, remember what happens at this battle. A lot of those kings die. Some of them uh, fell in the tar pits, whether by accident or by choice. It all depends on how you translate some of the language there. Um, and uh, among those captured is Lot and his family. And some of the Canaanites, whom Abram seems to have a covenant with them, um, which would have been common at this time, tell Abram, your, your, your nephew, which is essentially an adopted son to Abram, who would actually be the heir of all of his possessions, um, has been captured. 
So what does Abram do? Remember, the, the, the parallels are between uh, Abram and Gideon. Gideon rounds up 300 men, splits them in two and attacks. Abram rounds up, I think it was 318 men, splits them in two and attacks. Of course, he also has the, the other three Canaanite leaders with him as well. Uh, he rescues Lot um, and all of that. And so this is coming right off the heels of that. So let's look at, first of all, the, the narrative that we have here, uh, verses 17 and, and 20, 24. Um, Notice here in verse 17, we meet the king of Sodom. Now, we met a king of Sodom in the great battle, right? The battle of the nine armies. And his name was Bera. This is not the same guy. Because that Bera presumably is dead. So this would be maybe Bera's son or however, however they, they did it at, at the time. Um, and they meet at the valley of Shaveh. Now, Shave uh, means plain or level plain. One of the things I've noticed in, in these chapters is how generic some of these terms are. Um, and I, I can't remember off the top I think Sodom meant like wicked or something like that, you know. Um, but uh, so Shave just means plain. Now, the, the, the writer, well, I believe in Mosaic authorship, right? But, but perhaps there was a later editor who, who, who said for their readers, uh, the term we use for this area is King's Valley. And King's Valley actually shows up later on in, in the Bible. So in 2 Samuel 18, it says, Now Absalom, remember him, uh, that, that was the, uh, talk about a prodigal son, uh, in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the King's Valley. There it is. Happening in the same place. Uh, place names change over the years. And uh, so what was originally Shaveh, it eventually becomes the King's Valley. So why does the king of Sodom want to meet with Abram? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. One would be to show gratitude. Right? This, this, this is typical, right? If, if, you, if, if, if you have an outside force come, come to, to save you, uh, then, then you're, you're going to be thankful, right? I was watching the Hobbit movie recently. I actually finished it. Was it last night I finished it yesterday? And um, the book, book is book's always better, uh, almost always better. But at the end of the first Hobbit movie, they're saved by the eagles. For those familiar with Return of the King, there's a similar scene there. Well, the book or the movies don't go into this, but the eagles actually talk. They have an entire conversation with the eagles. And what is it that Gandalf and the dwarves were doing when the eagles say them? They are grateful because they were on the brink of death until Gandalf did it. So, so here Abram is, is a hero. He, he saves not just Lot, but Sodom and everyone else, pushbacks the, the, the foreign armies. But also here what the king of Sodom is doing is giving honor to Abram as a chief leader, if you want to call him that. He's not a king, but he, he clearly has a group of men he can round up to be, a, be an army. So he's more like a chief. Um, and uh, also to give him the spoils of war. This, this would be very typical. This could be a major plot line in the story. So the king of Sodom is, is showing up. Now, if you know nothing else about this story, that should stick out to you, right? So far, what we've seen with Sodom you know where this is going. But if you've not read the story, what, what's sticking out to you? Lot chose Sodom and went, so Lot went to the king of Sodom. Now we have the king of Sodom coming to Abram. And so we're kind of wondering as a reader, is what happened to Lot now going to happen to Abram? Because what do we see with Lot? Lot chooses the area where Sodom is, but he's on the outside. By chapter 14, he's on the inside. And so he's caught up in, in, in all of that becomes Sodom and, and, and Gomorrah. So the question for us as the reader is, is this going to happen to Abram? Is he going to make the same mistake with Sodom that he did with Egypt? 
Well, verses 18 to 20, we, we meet this guy, Melchizedek. I want you to notice how, how he's introduced verse 18, verse 18. Here it is. And Melchizedek. Right? You're like, oh, I'm supposed to know who that is? You ever have a conversation with someone and you have to stop them every 10 minutes and say, I'm sorry, who are we talking about? I'm sorry, I don't work with you. I don't know who you co-workers are. I've never met your family. have no intention to after this conversation. You ever meet someone like that? You're having to constantly stop and say, okay, so king of Sodom, I got that. You've introduced me to Sodom in a number of ways. I know who Abram is. I understand the battle. I know all those characters. And all of a sudden, Sodom, king of Sodom coming down, is gonna, gonna, uh, he's going to show honor and gratitude and give him the spoils of war. And then Melchizedek showed up. And you're like, who's Melchizedek? I don't know. <laughs> right? You should just know, shouldn't you, reader? But notice how he's described to you. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. He brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And that is all the introduction you're going to get about this guy. He's the king of Salem, uh, and he, uh, he is a priest of God Most High. So, uh, we should note beyond this passage, Melchizedek only shows up in two other books of the Bible. He shows up in one verse in Psalm 110. We'll, we'll look at it later. And he shows up in two chapters in Hebrews, which I believe, if you've been in Danny's Sunday School class, you should know everything there is to know about Melchizedek. He's done all the work for me. So uh, that's in Hebrews 5 and, and 7. His name means, my king is righteous. Or it means, my king is Zedek. Now, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Good try, right? Zedek means righteous. Moving on. It does. But there's, a, there's some problems here. There is a Canaanite god named Zedek, who means, which means righteous. You see the problems? Is Melchizedek a pagan king coming to meet Abram and bless Abram? Or is he a worshiper of Yahweh, though he may not use that term, is he a worshiper of Yahweh like Job is around this time? But he isn't of, a, of the line of Abram. So does his name mean my king is righteous or my, my king is Zedek, the God? Now, there is a similar name, and I put this in the notes, so if I get something wrong, forgive me. It's in Joshua 10-ish. Don't quote me on that. You can Google it. His name is Adonai Zedek. He is a Canaanite king before the conquering of Canaan. And his name means Adonai, my Lord, is Zedek. My Lord is king. And from what we can tell, he's as pagan as anyone. So what do you do with Melchizedek? So I've spent hours on this, and I still don't really have all the answers. So this, this, is, this is my approach to it. My concern is less uh, about the man Melchizedek, how he understood his name. I have no problem with it being my God is Zedek if he's an heir to the throne, so he's going to be king, in a pagan con, you know, context, right? We have plenty of people who named their child Christian, right? And it's anything but. We have examples in the New Testament of people their name is like Apollos, but they ain't pagan, okay? So, so you can't always read too much in it. What I want to do with Melchizedek is say, what does the Bible do with Melchizedek? I think those are two, two different things. So in that context, what the Bible does is it plays on his name, Melchizedek, 
my king, Melech means king. Uh, Zedek means righteous. So my king is righteous. The Bible takes that phrase and applies it to righteousness. So, so I'm going to go in that direction. That's what you get in Psalm 110, what you're going to get in, in, in the book of Hebrews. Well, so his name is my king is righteous. By the way, you, you can mess with Melech too. That may be a, a, a reference to the Canaanite God, but you don't care about any of that. Um, and I get lost in, in all that sort of stuff. His title is King of Salem. Now, where is Salem? Does the name Salem sound familiar? Some of y'all may already know this. It sounds like, yes. Exactly. This is where we burn witches. <laughs> oh, there's always one in the crowd. You're done standing above us. So. <laughs> but yeah, so Salem, if you know Hebrew, sounds a lot like Shalom, right? It's the same word, essentially, right? Salem is where we get Jerusalem. Shalom. Now, where does Jerusalem, what does that mean? Well, we know the shalom of Jerusalem. The problem is the first part of it. And from what I've been able to study is there's a lot of mystery there. There's a lot of debate as to the etymology of it. Uh, we have various, what is the first reference to Jerusalem? Even outside of the Bible, we have, we have countless ones of that from pagan resources, Egyptian sources, Canaanite sources. So Jerusalem seen, it predates David, pagan. Right? David is the one that makes Jerusalem his capital. So, so, so Jerusalem's around long before the Israelites are, are taking over things. So, but nevertheless, the city of Jerusalem is always associated with the idea of peace, shalom. This is Jerusalem. He is the king of what will become later Jerusalem. In fact, we get this reference of Salem in Psalm 76. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. Well, if you know your, your, your Old Testament, Zion is the literal place of Jerusalem. It's also a, uh, if you will, a prophetic word for Jerusalem. So, so there is the Zion, and then there's the ultimate Zion that we're longing for. So we sing, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion, right? Well, well, we're not. There's a Mount Zion just north of here, if you take 75, right? Well, that's not where you're going. Zion is, is, is the, the new Jerusalem. And, and so, so the Bible uses Zion that way. So you see the parallelism. Uh, established in Salem, uh, dwelling place in Zion. It's parallelism. Salem and Zion are the same thing. What are they describing? That is the, the city of Jerusalem. So what we have here is a Canaanite king. Um, and it's, it's, he's ruling over a Canaanite city. Because uh, it, it won't be Jewish city until David. And he comes, and we learned here he is not just king, he is priest of God Most High. Now, there's a lot of debate about the language here. Again, what, what my approach is, is not to get down into the, the specifics and how does it relate to uh, Canaanite religion and Ugaric religion and all this sort of stuff. My concern is what does the Bible do with this information? I recognize there's a lot of mystery and complication. What does the Bible do with it? And it, it seems clear to me the Bible takes the imagery of king and priest and says in one person you have both. You have the secular and the sacred in one person. Ruler and religious leader in one person. This is what the Bible's doing. So the presumption, I think, for the reader should be when he says God most high, he's not saying Zedek, the Canaanite God, is God most high, but that 
what we would describe as Yahweh, Abraham's God, is God Most High. So, so that, that's the way, that's the short way of, of taking what it is that, that I want. Now, the combining of king and priest was not unique in the ancient Near Eastern culture. If you know anything about, about Egyptians, they essentially do the same thing, right? The, the pharaohs are, are gods, right? Uh, they're, they're gods in flesh, demigods. And so, so they're, they're rulers, and yet they have a religious role as well. Even in modern culture, we understand this. What's one of the big debates we have as Americans? What is the relationship between church and state? Why, why is that still a debate? It's been a debate in every human culture throughout history. Both religion and, and, and the civil authorities is kind of important. Uh, so we separate those. That, that's actually a Christian idea. Um, but, but most cultures have merged them. Right, so, um, so it wouldn't have been unusual. However, um, this is a, a bit odd in the Bible. Can you think of anyone in the Old Testament, Israelites, who was both priest and king, officially? Not really. Not really. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you, when you think of Saul, David, uh, Solomon, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, uh, all, all those guys. Now, now we'll, hopefully next week we can look at this. David gets dangerously close. Because Jesus will pick up on it. Um, when David eats the showbread, remember? Um, and David wears the priestly garb and he dances. Um, you know, he clearly wasn't Southern Baptist. His, his wife was because she didn't approve of the dancing. But um, he, gets, he gets uncomfortably close to that. Like he almost, and, and of course Jesus will pick up on it because ultimately, spoiler alert, Jesus is the king priest, right? Um, but nevertheless, this would have been a normal here. And you think about it, what do you get in Israelite religion is with Moses, you have your, your leader. In his case, uh, he's viewed as like a prophet. But then that is separated from the priest, which is his brother. Those are separated. And so what you eventually get, the line of David is the line of Judah. Those are your kings. The line of the, Isra of, of the priest is the line of Levi. Right? So, so technically, Jesus is of the line of kings. But what's the first story you get in Luke? It's John the Baptist who's of the line of Levi. So, so, so we get this in the New Testament, and that's going to play a role. So what you get in Melchizedek is something unique. You're not going to find an Israelite religion, a priest king. These are put together for us in this scene. Now, notice what he does. Um, he blesses Abram. Uh, who recognizes Melchizedek as a priest of God, his God. Um, and he, 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 we know he recognizes Melchizedek because he pays a tithe. Now, I know that should be your Bible. Go ahead and mark it out. We'll just move on, right? This is the first reference we have to a tithe in the Bible, right here. It's not in the New Testament. It's right here in the Old Testament. Uh, so, so remember, Abram is supposed to be getting all the spoils. He's supposed to be getting. But instead, what Abram ends up doing is giving. He's giving not just to Melchizedek the king, but Melchizedek the priest, recognizing that what it is he is saying is, is of God. Um, also, we need to note, this is the first time the word priest is used in the Bible. This is going to be really important next week. We, we, we trace this, this throughout the Bible. So Melchizedek, at least from our perspective, is the very first priest in the Bible. And he's Canaanite. He may have even have a pagan name. So think about that. That'll help you in your reading of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, look, there's a guy whose, whose priesthood is, is very different from 
the Aaronic priesthood. And that's how he makes his connection to Jesus. And then what, is, what does, so if Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth, what does Melchizedek bring to Abram? You see it there in the text? What does he bring? Bread and wine. Now, you New Testament readers, I mean, your spotty sense should be going off, right? Where have you heard bread and wine? Well, we do the Baptist version of it here, right? You know, because we want everyone to drive safely, right? We've had cops worship here before. We don't want anyone to get in trouble. So we do Baptist, Baptist wine called Welch's Grape Juice. And I've told you this before. Apparently, it has to be Welch's. I have to do all this before, right? Like one of my first uh, 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 Lord's Supper services at Goshen, um, we, we were on Wick. And so what I'm about to tell you is illegal, so I broke the law. We, we had some extra grape juice, and we didn't have a lot of money at the church, whatnot. So we thought, we've got enough grape juice here. Uh, we'll just use it for communion. And, you had, and you, a juicy juice is what you got on Wick. And, uh, well, juicy juice grape juice does not taste like Welch's grape juice. And you guys will probably notice, I don't care about any of that stuff. It's grape juice. What do I care, right, how much sugar is in it? It's grape juice. We ain't breaking the Bible. They didn't drink grape juice in the Bible. Anyways, and, but man, it was not approved. Should have taken that to a committee. Would have been the wrong committee. Because I didn't look it up in the Constitution before that. So we had to do Welch's grape juice after that. So, but what are, where's our, our communion idea? Well, it comes from the Last Supper. Where does that come from? It comes from, from, from the uh, Passover meal. Where did this first come from? Ah, here's the Genesis. You're seeing what Paul does in Galatians. We will say, look, there's things in the law that predate the law. Like a tithe would be one of those. He looks at circumcision, doesn't he? He says that circumcision predates the law, which means that it's not the law that's saving you. It's not circumcision that's saving you. And he goes all the way back to Abraham. We'll get to, to, to that part soon. And so we see this with, with bread and wine. It's, it's, it just jumps off the page, it should, as you're reading this. Well, the narrator, what he's ultimately doing. So what do we have? We have two kings, king of Sodom and king of Salem. He's drawn a contrast between those two. Sodom is the wicked city. And now that that wicked city is tempting him with honor and praise, right? And as, as we're about to see. And the question is, will he fight against this forbidden fruit? Um, and of course, we know that Sodom is the wicked city. Genesis 13 told us as much, yet Lot went in that direction. So we've got King of Sodom. He's come, give gratitude, all that. It gets interrupted by this bizarre scene with Melchizedek, whatever all that's about. And then we go back to the story of Sodom, the king of Sodom. And what does he do? Well, verse 21, he invites Abram to take for himself the spoils of war. So 21 says there, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself, right? So, so I don't want you taking my people as slaves, anything like that. You can, you can keep all the cattle you want, keep all the gold you want, keep, keep, keep all the weapons you want, keep all of that, but just give me back, back my, my people, right? Now, if you're reading your Bible, what is the king of Sodom doing? He is like a serpent here. He, 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 is, he is encouraging Abram to take for yourself. Take for yourself whatever it is you want. Because that's exactly what Lot fell for. He sees Sodom in a distance. He sees riches and wealth and well-being and an early retirement. And what is it that Sodom saying from a distance? Take for yourself whatever it is you want. What is the serpent saying in the garden? Take for yourself whatever it is that, that you want. 
Um, and so verse 22 to 24, Abram takes an oath um, not to take anything. This is important. Uh, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high. There's that phrase. That takes us back to the story of Melchizedek. This is why I think we should read Melchizedek as the Bible reads Melchizedek. Um, and so Abram sees what Melchizedek said was true about the God who, who has brought him into covenant. Possessor of heaven and earth. Now notice Abram is, is, is drawing out um, and in repeating what Melchizedek said in his blessing. His blessing was, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. That's interesting. God possesses both. Anyways, um, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap. So thread is the thinnest. Um, the sandal strap will be the thickest of, of, of the leather. Uh, or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre take, take their share. So uh, this, this is a very important scene. What he says is, I ain't taking nothing. The only thing I wanted was Lot and his family. I'm not taking anything else. I came here on a rescue mission not um, to enrich myself. Now, why is this important? Well, the way, um, the way it works is whoever wins the victory gets all the good stuff. Right, that, that makes sense. You get all the spoils and everyone else gets, gets whatever is, is left. Um, so here you have, if you will, a tree of temptation before Abram. Will he take it? Will he not? Remember, God has already given him everything. God's already promised to, to bless him with everything. Will he take it? And the answer is, is no. In fact, he, he, he takes an oath. Um, and one of the reasons this will, is important because the way this works is, if, if by saying, I'll let you take the spoils, what the king of Sodom is saying, I will always get credit of making you rich. Now, you think about how politics works. The way it works in campaigning and, and committee appointments and stuff is, is those who scratch your back, you're going to have to scratch theirs, right? So if Sodom makes Abram rich, he can, he can lord that over Abram later. You know, everything you have, I gave to you. Could have taken it from you, but no, no, I gave it to you. So Abram wisely chooses not to do that. Um, Clearly, Abram is, has learned from his Egyptian experience. Now, Abram also learns that the nations will not provide or protect him. Uh, uh, Abram has learned that God will do that. That's what the whole Egyptian experience was. Also notice this. Sodom offers a false blessing to Abram. I will bless you with the spoils. But who is it that actually blesses Abram here? It's Melchizedek. Why is that so important? What's the promises that God made to Abram? I will bless those who bless you. Who here in the story is truly blessing Abram? It's Melchizedek. All he does is bring a meal. And without any strings attached. His concern is simply blessing Abram. So Abram is rejecting the way of the nations embodied by Sodom and adopting the way of Melchizedek, the way of God most high. So this is a really triumphant moment, not just for Abram physically. He, he won a battle, and that was cool. You know, 
they'll probably make a movie out of them. Um, but, um, but really, spiritually, this is a great moment. He's, he's clearly learning from the Egyptian experience and living by faith. So that, that's the narrative. Now, what do we do with this? What's, what's the whole point of, of this passage? Well, we need to note here, the brief episode zeroes in, as we said, on Abram's relationship with two Canaanite kings. On the one hand, it, it recalls Abram's calling to be a blessing to the nations. However, here the nations are seeking to be a blessing to Abram. Isn't this part of it? You'll bless the nations, and the nations will, will bless you, right? So we're seeing this. Abram goes to rescue his, his, son, his, his adopted son Lot, and he, he rescues all these other nations. How do they respond? They respond by blessing him. Those who bless you, I will bless. So we see that covenant already taking place. And remember that Abram is a sojourner. He has to be very careful with what he does in his land, else they'll declare war against him. Now the nations are coming to bless him. So, But on the other hand, this unique passage has garnered more debate than just about any. So, again, who is Melchizedek? Who is he? Well, I'm going to give you four options in summary. One... He is Sham, the son of Noah, who is still alive. If you run your numbers, now you're going to make an assumption. You answered in Genesis, guys. I know what, I know what y'all already think. Are there gaps in the genealogy? Okay? If there aren't, then Sham is still alive during the time of Abram. That is a long life lived right there. That's a long life lived. I mean, can you imagine what he has seen and lived through? How many, like, 2020s has he seen in his lifetime? It's crazy. It's crazy, right? Um, would have been nice to have him around thinking, y'all think this is bad. The, the Spanish flu is far worse. That winter in the 1800s was, was, was much worse than what y'all are going through. So that's one option. This is the one I was listening to the podcast. This, this was the, one, the first question. Everyone wants to know, could it be sham? He's like, why would it be? Of course, the Bible never makes this connection. What you have is people trying to come up with, a, with an answer that will just blow people's mind but means nothing. Second option is it's an angel. This is a very prominent one. Melchizedek is, is an angel. The um, problem is that the Bible doesn't treat it that way. I think Hebrews makes it very clear that he's not an angel. Here's a third one. Pre-incarnate Jesus, or that is the angel of the Lord, is perhaps uh, one of the more prominent options as... It's Christians. I think Hebrews 7 kind of ruins this. Um, I didn't put it up there. Uh, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of the life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Um, so so this is, this is uh, a lot of people like that. I don't think it works. Um, finally, he's a historic figure. I think, that, I think this is what the Bible is getting at. He's as real as the king of Saul. But what the Bible does is it takes his name and his story and, and develops an entire, really, theology from it. So, so what is that? What, what's the point? Let's look at the theological um, interpretation here. What is that we do with this? Well, as you can already tell, what we have here is a theological retelling of the Eden story. Instead of two trees, we have two kings. King Sodom, the king of Sodom, meets with Abram and offers him spoils. The king of Salem meets with Abram outside of Jerusalem, nonetheless, and offers him a meal and a blessing. Of course, remember, Jerusalem is going to be the place where God dwells with his people. It is the Garden of Eden, because that's where the temple is. 
And the Garden of Eden is nothing but a temple. So here you have King of Sodom where wickedness dwells, the wilderness. And then you're going to get King of Salem where God will dwell. And they're meeting here with Abram. Uh, notice also there is wine, which means uh, there's the uh, trees and plants involved. We, we did a whole study of trees and all that sort of stuff. So remember, you, you've got trees, obviously, in the garden. Noah, who's another type of, of Adam. We, we went through all that. What is his temptation at the end? He sits by a plant and he gets drunk. And all kinds of problems happen. Uh, mankind is cursed again. What do we have here? We have yet more fruits of the vine. But how did the story start? Abram has built an altar by the oaks of Mamre. Here is a tree in the presence of God, the altar of the Lord, where he builds. And then he's called out and he comes back. And now what we have is the fruit of vines. So, so the similarities with Eden, I think, are there. The king of Solomon comes to take, right? Give me the people. Whereas the king of Salem comes to give food and blessing. And so the Genesis 12 covenant states, those who bless you, I will bless. Melchizedek is the first, of course, to bless Abram. No wonder through David, Jerusalem is blessed. I think this is one of the reasons why David would choose Jerusalem to be his capital. So Sodom is a land of evil. Salem is a land of peace. So we've, we've tried to point this out, how often the story of the Garden of Eden shows up throughout Genesis over and over and over again. You remember that when Abram went to Egypt, what did he do? He did what the serpent did. He handed over his wife. And what did Pharaoh do? He saw that she was beautiful, delightful to his eyes, and took her for his own pleasure. Uh, it's, this, it's the retelling of, of the same story. Sarah will do the same thing with Hagar. Give her over to, to him. So there's a theological interpretation. There's also an eschatological interpretation. Not, we won't be able to get into a lot of this. Um, this story builds anticipation for the Messiah. We are supposed to ask here, aren't we? Who is the king of Salem? Who is the king of Jerusalem? Melchizedek, I believe, is purposely mysterious. There's a lot of mysteries here. And so what we're doing throughout the rest of the Bible is we are looking for characters just like him. And so, years, generations, centuries later, a king rises and he establishes Jerusalem as the, as the location where God will dwell. Um, and it is there God will make an eternal covenant with his people. And remember, what is the covenant of David? It is an eternal covenant. There will be someone sitting on your throne forever and ever. The genesis of that is here. We got the king of Salem and the forefather of the Jews meeting together with wine and bread between them. And it is the king of Salem blessing Abram and his descendants. So then when we read the story of David, we meet a son of, da a son of Abram who established Jerusalem as his capital city. Who, who is both king and flirts with being priests. It, it, it all makes sense. And the covenant comes and says, you will have one upon the throne forever. So what is it that we are looking for in the end? We're looking for true and better David, the true and better Melchizedek, true and better all that sort of stuff to return. We get this in, in uh, I didn't put it up there. Psalm, yeah, I did. I know I did. There it is. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you know your New Testament, we immediately meet a problem. Who is David's Lord? Well, it's Yahweh. But it looks like here David has a Lord who speaks to the Lord. 
Who's above the king? Ain't nobody. Otherwise, he'd be king. And so, remember that, that Jesus tricks the religious elites by quoting this verse. You tell me, who is Lord here? And, and Jesus says, it's me. <laughs> right? It's, that was me. I'm in the Bible. Right? So the Lord says to my Lord, right? Um, Sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your foot. So this is quoted throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts. The Lord sends forth from Zion. Where is Zion? It's Jerusalem. It's Salem. Sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now notice here, this Lord is king and he rules, but he comes from Jerusalem. But it's Zion, the ideal Jerusalem. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the wound of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you see, this is a different priesthood. It's a different priesthood. It's not the priesthood of Aaron. because He's not going to come from the, the priesthood from the line of Aaron. It's a different priesthood. So what are we looking for? We're looking for a priest king. This is the hope of the nations. A priest king. This is an eschatological hope here. And this is what the Bible does with, with Melchizedek. Finally, as, as you can tell, there is a Christological interpretation here. Jesus is the true and better Melchizedek. I mean, is, we do this every week, don't we? Uh, we've seen it with Noah. We've seen it with Abraham. Turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7. We won't have time to, to interpret it, but just to introduce it. Hebrews 7. The writer says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, made Abram return from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So, so you see what the right of Hebrews is. He's, I want you to see he's the king of righteous. My king is righteous. So, 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 so it's not that he is righteous, but that his king is righteous. And he is coming from the city of peace. This He is the king of peace. This is very important for the Hebrew writer. Um, verse 3, he's without father or mother, genealogy, having neither beginning nor days. Like, that's a huge debate there. We, we can't talk about verse 3, what it all means. I have no doubt that Danny answered all your questions there. If not, go talk to him. Um, see how great this man was to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abram and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other by one by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. You see the writer of Hebrews, see this story so important for us to understand who Christ is. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be 
for there to be another priest to arise after the word of Melchizedek rather than one named after the word of Aaron. This is very important. He said, if the law could save you, if the priesthood could save you, you come to the temple, you make your sacrifice, you offer your prayers, you, you pay your tithe, and, and you, you, you retweet everything the Pope puts on, on Twitter, then you will be saved. If that was sufficient, what do you do with Melchizedek here? It's a different priesthood. It's a superior priesthood. Because the one who will give birth to Levi pays a tenth to him. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is doing. And what he's going to show us is that Jesus is that true and better Melchizedek. Verse 12, for when there is change of the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has, has, served, has ever served the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Right? It's the, the Levites who are priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him. You are the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 that we just had up there. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and usefulness, uselessness. For law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Again, Psalm 110. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You see what he's doing here. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You see what he's saying here? Jesus is not a true and better Aaron. He's a true and better Melchizedek. And as our great high priest, he stands between us and God. He offers not a lamb that will have to be sacrificed every, every year. He offers his own blood. We did, we did a whole series on the language of Jesus as lamb. And one of those was that the priest is simultaneously the lamb. It's a beautiful image. The one who offers the gift is the gift. He's a true and better Melchizedek. Not because of a law or because of tradition, but because he has an eternal covenant with him. And what did he come and bring to us? What did he leave us behind with? Bread, wine, which are pictures of himself. And with that, he blesses the nations. Those who are true sons and daughters of Abraham, who by faith come to him. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? There's a lot of mystery with Melchizedek, and I can't answer it all. 
One other thing I think we need, to, we need to highlight here. Notice that Abram does not meet Melchizedek in Salem. Rather, it's said that it's outside. Now, now Abram travels, takes a while to get up there, fights his battle, and he's walking back. And they're in Damascus, I think. You, you can look at it. I think it's Damascus, okay? So, so what you have then is the king of Sodom coming down, and you have the king of Salem coming up, and they're meeting, which means this priest king offers this gift outside the city gates, as will Christ thousands of years later. Isn't that the point of, of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13? One of, one of the things he, he does there. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sacrifice, to sanctify the people through his own blood. Again, the priest is the lamb. Remember that series? The shepherd is the lamb, the lion is the lamb, and the priest is the lamb. That's the good news of the story of Melchizedek. Everything else is details, but you've got to get that. It's theological, it's eschatological, and it's Christological. I'm exhausted. You guys see anything that I've completely missed? Yeah, we'll one, one Is it halftime? Yeah. Well, I know none of y'all want Duke to win. So, you know, hey, they beat them a few days ago. So, of course, they probably won't because it's little, And they'll go to NCAA prison regardless. All right, guys, if nothing else, next week we'll, we'll broaden it out, look at some free stuff. Then we'll go to chapter 15. We're making good time in Genesis. Well, it took us like three months to get out of the first chapter. All right, how about we stand? Because we can't touch each other on the order of Andy Bashir, and uh, we'll be dismissed.